Welcome to the Who, What, Why podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sheckman. For journalism, it may be the best of times and the worst of times. On the one hand, the national media is more vibrant than ever. The New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal, as well as broadcast and cable news networks are thriving. For these outlets, the transition to digital has been painful but successful and is still ongoing. As it was recently announced by CNN and NBC News that they would be moving to a streaming model. Today, the New York Times derives more than 60% of its revenue from digital subscriptions. Recurring revenue models are driving the success of independent and specific news outlets, and individual journalists on Substack and similar platforms are thriving. While romantics rap quixotic about the 23 newspapers that once were available in New York, websites and Twitter have now subsumed that. And new sites start up regularly with lower barriers to entry and what some argue is a greater democratization of information. For local news, however, the story is different. For what's happening in your neighborhood, your school board, your city council is a very different story. Thousands of local newspapers and local radio stations have shut down. The economics of the enterprise has proven to be unsustainable. And even large regional papers in places like L.A., Chicago, and Miami have proven to be problematic. And while many of the best of these papers have been stripped and plundered by hedge funds, let's also remember that many were acquired by the hedge funds out of bankruptcy. All of this begs the question as to whether our political, cultural, and social divide stems from the top, as is assumed, or whether the hollowing out of news in our communities, something that should be bringing us together, is at the heart of what's wrong. And if so, does the government have a role to play in fixing that effort? And further, is the problem with the product, with the public, or as it is often so easy to do, should we just blame social media? We're going to talk about all of this today with my guest, Martha Minow. She's the 300th anniversary university professor at Harvard. She served as the dean of the Harvard Law School between 2009 and 2017 and has taught at the law school since 1981. She's been called one of the leading human rights scholars and one of the world's leading figures in bringing legal ideas and scholarship to bear on issues of identity, race, and equality. She is the daughter of former FCC Commission Chairman Newton Minow and has degrees from the University of Michigan, the Harvard Graduate School of Education, and Yale Law School, where she was editor of the Yale Law Journal. And she clerked for former Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall. It is my pleasure to welcome Martha Minow to the program to talk about her new work, Saving the News, Why the Constitution Calls for Government Action to Preserve Freedom of Speech. Martha Minow, welcome to the Who, What, Why podcast. Thank you so much. When we look at the news today, when we look at the state of journalism today, in your view, where is the biggest problem that we face? I do think you put your finger on the crisis in local news. That's a major problem. And then I think we have a combination of the assault uh, on the business model of the news industry that has come largely from the Internet. It's not just social media. It's Craigslist. Uh, it's uh, all different ways that advertising is sold. And it's also the cultivation of an attitude uh, among all of us that we get whatever we want on uh, in terms of information free instead of paying for it. So that attacks the subscription model. 
Uh, so those are major, major problems. You know, I think that the traditional media was too slow in adapting to the digital realities. But we also have uh, Internet platform companies that are, in essence, subsidized by the government by being given an immunity from the kinds of liabilities that attach to all other media enterprises for violating basic norms of tort law, contract law. Uh, and so there's, there's a little bit of blame to go around. Isn't that blame, though, kind of tinkering around the edges? Because when we talk about business models, and I'm not talking about local news, we'll get to that in a minute, but when we're talking about the larger framework, these companies have constantly adapted to the changing landscape. I mean, advertising revenue did go away from news, I mean, even from institutions like the Washington Post and the New York Times. But those companies over time were able to pivot and are now relying on subscription models. And we're seeing that even individual journalists are able to make a living, and some of them quite well, off subscription models just on newsletters. So there has been a pivot to the reality, to the business reality for news. For a few leading national organizations, that is true. But uh, as your lead-in noted, even for such august institutions as the Chicago Tribune, uh, the L.A. Times, uh, they have faced enormous challenges. And these are not just small local enterprises. Uh, and so I, I, it, the question is whether this pivot is going to be workable for all of the different providers that are necessary to produce an informed democracy. Talk about local news and the way in which it has deteriorated and, and where you see the problems there. You know, the Pew Charitable Research Organizations came up with the phrase news desert, which sadly describes now thousands of communities across the country where there's literally no one who is reporting on what is the local school board doing? Is there lead in the local water? Is there corruption by local officials? Uh, and that is because the local papers proved unsustainable or they were purchased, uh, whether out of bankruptcy or not, uh, by either chain organizations or by private equity organizations that proceeded to plunder them and shrink the staffs so that they really have become almost non-existent and in many communities literally non-existent. Uh, this is a major crisis. And while you can go online to get national news, you can maybe go online even to find out where you can get a COVID vaccination. You don't have, uh, you can't go online to create the watchdog press that has been the uh, heartblood of really accountable uh, government and accountable businesses in local communities. Talk about where you see the responsibility for that and some of the solutions that you believe are necessary in order to address these local news deserts and the reality of what you're talking about. You know, I'm a, a fan of private enterprise, and I have no beef with uh, investors from outside of a community if if they buy a paper, but if they strip it of all of its content until no one will subscribe to it, which is happening in many communities, 
I think that that is uh, a really irresponsible behavior. Um, it is, uh, however, a reflection of the expectations that many have of double-digit returns on investment. You know, many of the papers that have gone under were in the black. They were not uh, running deficits, but they weren't running the kind of return that many people in the investment world uh, demand and expect. You know, another problem uh, is that I think uh, readers, consumers, uh, have lost the willingness uh, in some places, the ability to pay for subscriptions. Um, and uh, local advertisers um, have uh, migrated to other forums. Uh, so the, the traditional mechanisms for funding local news have been one by one by one decimated. What are the possible avenues? I think that there are many. I think there are many things that can be done. Uh, I don't think there's going to be a magic bullet. I don't think there's one size fits all. But I'm very intrigued to see that the Internal Revenue Service allowed the Salt Lake Tribune to turn into a nonprofit organization uh, in 2019. Uh, and that means that it can receive donations and it can, uh, those donations are tax deductible to the individuals who make the donations. Uh, and I think this is an example uh, that is going to be followed by many others, so that a mix of income from uh, sponsors and from subscribers and from tax deductions, uh, also foundations, could help to sustain some local news organizations. Uh, th I do think that there's also the possibility uh, of, of national support for this kind of idea, even for uh, entities that continue to be organized as for-profit. So pending in Congress right now is the Local Journalism Sustainability Act. And this bill that has bipartisan support would give people the ability to uh, deduct the expense of a subscription to local news as well as donations to local news. And it would also uh, grant uh, a relief to the news organizations from payroll tax when they hire journalists. And it would further allow businesses to deduct the expense of advertising in local news. And the real virtue of this uh, kind of model is it the government is not deciding anything about what should be funded and what shouldn't be funded. It's, it's the readers, it's the users, it's the local businesses, and I, I think that's why there's bipartisan support for it. In looking at local news, to what extent does it come down to the community and the, and the community having the desire for this information and the community supporting the effort, either through contributions or subscriptions or even in, in, in the business community's involvement, as in the Texas Tribune model? Well, of course, uh, the demand and willingness to, uh, to pay for a subscription or to give donations will make a huge difference. But many of the communities we're talking about have been decimated by other uh, causes uh, that mean that there aren't local businesses. There's a divestment generally, um, or people in the community are really struggling during the pandemic. People lost jobs and had to give up uh, expenses that weren't uh, absolutely necessary. 
I do think that there is a need to cultivate uh, a willingness to pay for receiving news. And uh, as some of the national organizations found they had to do, um, but it's going to be a mix of cultivating those kinds of uh, audiences and willingness to support and getting uh, uh, some help, including help from the government, like with tax deductibility. Has the fact that the national media has moved towards this subscription model, that the idea that everything would be free, which is where it all started, I mean, the music business went through a similar kind of crisis, and, and the fact that people are now paying for national news, is that setting the stage in a way that is going to trickle down to help local journalism? I do think that there's some lessons to learn there. You know, when Napster and other sharing sites seemed to be destroying the music industry, iTunes came up with a model that was affordable for people and it's been sustainable. Uh, I think that there's a lot to learn there. And I think that uh, there may well also be ways that local outlets can share the back office, these fundraising efforts, uh, and not have to one by one by one replicate uh, these techniques uh, and, and, and yet still have the content development be done at a local level. One of the other things that's changed with respect to, to local news is that local radio for a long time played a significant role in getting information to local communities. That's changed and disappeared as well. Quite true. Uh, and again, there's been this uh, aggregation uh, by some entities, by some chains, some organizations, um, and that has, in many communities, meant that there really is only one option, and it typically has a particular political point of view. Uh, there, there is the counter trend of micro journalism because the barriers to entry are lower. So people can have a blog that can cover what's going on on their block. Um, what's needed is a way to uh, actually get some of those uh, stories into the hands of distributors that go beyond the local neighborhood, because uh, those stories can add up to a big story that has significance in the region or even in the nation. As these deserts exist and as there's greater desire in the community, and, and, and you're alluding to this, greater desire in the community to get this information, we, we seem to be seeing some of these experiments spring up, some of these efforts like Nextdoor, which, which certainly is not the be-all and end-all, but an interesting experiment, and some of the things that, that you're talking about. And the marketplace is driving some experimentation that seems to be helpful in these areas. That's true, uh, and some of it is really taking the place of uh, a community bulletin board, um, but that can be a, a hook or a basis for building uh, rep reporting. You know, in some real respect, it's the journalism uh, industry or the journalism profession, if you want to call it that, that has been suffering the most, uh, the losses of employment for people who are journalists. That's been dramatic. Uh, and those who are stepping up often get no or very little pay for what they're doing. And that's not sustainable. 
So uh, that's why we do need to, to develop some multiple sources of, uh, of income. And, uh, and that includes uh, public financing. That includes uh, philanthropic financing. What about this idea of citizen journalism that gets talked about so much as, as an answer to what you're saying? Well, you know, there's there's a lot to uh, commend. Uh, you know, the the fact that people have a cell phone and can take a photograph um, can help with law enforcement. It can help with uh, celebrating local events, um, and similarly uh, to blog. The problem is uh, that that really does um, show the strengths and the drawbacks of the lowering of barriers that the internet represents. So the good news is there's no intermediary deciding who is or is not a citizen journalism. The bad news is there's no intermediary <laughs> deciding who is or who is not. And as a result, you can have a wildfire spread of misinformation, disinformation, uh, libelous information. Uh, and that's, that's not good. How do we deal with that within the framework and the experimentation, bold and persistent though it may be, that we're seeing? How do we address that part of it? Well, it's hard, but I do think there's lessons to be learned from earlier eras. So there was a period in the 19th century when uh, journalism was uh, really uh, caught up with rumors and maybe disinformation, too. And yellow journalism was one name given to it. And one of the uh, critical responses was uh, the development of a professional uh, identity and ethos among journalists who developed codes of conduct, voluntary codes of conduct, that really uh, to this day represent the gold standard for reporting. Are there two sources for a story? Is there a conflict of interest in someone who's claiming to be a source? Uh, and protecting the identity of sources. Those are all voluntary standards that help to professionalize journalism. Uh, it may be time now to do something similar for the online, whether it's the citizen journalist or the blogger. Uh, voluntary would be better than government regulation, but you can imagine uh, that the kinds of benefits that the government gives, whether it's nonprofit status, that allows donations, or it's something like the immunity of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act uh, that shields the Internet service uh, operators and the social media from liabilities that attach to uh, the Washington Post. Well, those kinds of benefits could be conditioned on the development and compliance with uh, voluntary codes of conduct. Where, if anywhere, in your view, is pushback to any of this? Who benefits from news deserts, from lack of information, from misinformation, particularly in the local arena we've been talking about? Well, sad to say, uh, corruption benefits, whether it's uh, on the part of uh, government officials or private uh, companies, uh, pollution benefits. You know, I was so struck to learn that uh, when Flint, Michigan, uh, it, it was identified as a place with lead in the water, uh, the individuals who blew the whistle 
um, have reported since that there are other communities with similarly dangerous levels of lead in the water, but they lack the local news. They lack the reporting. That Now, so who's benefiting? Uh, sadly, it's bad forces, forces of, of, uh, uh, of environmental danger. You know, in, in Ferguson, Missouri, where Michael Brown uh, suffered uh, terrible, uh, deadly violence at the hand of the police, uh, when the Department of Justice did an investigation and explored how the local courts relied on more and more fines and fees on the backs of poor people to finance them. One of the things that emerged was that there was no local news. There was no local cable, no local radio, no local journalism that could monitor that kind of behavior. Is this an area, though, where social media, for example, is a benefit? I mean, we saw, for example, and and perhaps the penultimate example of late, is the George Floyd video, which went on social media, went viral, and changed the world. Absolutely, and there can be some real benefits, uh, uh, and particularly when it's something that has that kind of a reality base. Uh, So I am not uh, calling for turning the clock back. I think giving the tools to report and to gather information, to share it, in the hands of uh, ordinary people can be a great boon. But the loss of any kind of intermediary to judge, was this a doctored video? Was it a, a, a real fake uh, as opposed to was it real? That's a real problem. And it's led to the kind of disinformation and the kind of, you know, galloping distrust. At the moment, most trusted in America when it comes to news are local media Uh, and public media. Um, And I worry that there's going to be more and more and more people who just say, well, I don't believe anything that I read or hear because it could all be made up. Isn't there an inherent contradiction in that, in that, and to your point, in that national media, which is the most mediated, the most examined before it goes out into the public realm, is is not maybe not the least trusted, but tr- not trusted as much. What does that tell us? Well, I, I think that that reflects the p- polarization and politicization of the national media. Uh, so you have uh, some uh, national uh, outlets, uh, Fox News comes to mind, uh, that are so clearly committed to a particular uh, political point of view um, and that's contributed to the polarization of the country. But social media in its architecture has as well. So because the ad uh, market uh, it benefits by dividing us ever more and more into sub-communities, you get your news feed similarly organized based on uh, views about who you are which means when you call up your information, you get something different than I get. So we're not seeing the same stories. We're not seeing uh, the same news. Well, talk about that. And and what, if anything, in your view, should address that? Well, I I think uh, that there are some uh, real obligations on on the part of these newly powerful entities uh, to uh, actually protect consumers from uh, from manipulation. 
there are consumer protection laws on the books that are not enforced. There are fraud laws that are not enforced. And those laws could be amplified and strengthened. I also think that uh, there would be markets, there would be an interest people would have uh, in knowing what is the architecture, what is leading to what I see and what I don't see. Can I turn off auto scroll that takes me or my teenager ever deeper into uh, worlds that are not good? Uh, what can I do um, uh, to actually be more responsive uh, and responsible in my use of social media? Some people have proposed, and I think this is interesting, uh, an obligation of the uh, big uh, social media platforms to share uh, their API, their technical digital details to allow the development of a new industry that would allow you and me and all of us to purchase um, or support uh, uh, curators who reflect our values rather than being ourselves the product of the social media. I think that's an interesting idea, too. Um, I think at a minimum, uh, there should be options uh, that the social media platforms provide for all of us that we can say, no, I would like actually not to have my uh, past viewing patterns dictate what I see now. I'd like to see a, a selection of goods. I'd like to see a selection of materials. I'd like to not have uh, uh, changing priorities so that I never get to see, uh, you know, what my aunt's uh, posts anymore because someone thought I wouldn't want to see them. From a political perspective, though, one wonders if they would be any difference because the, the algorithms do reflect, I mean, exactly as you're saying, the algorithms reflect what you have looked at in the past, the things that have interested you in the past. If if you had more of a hand in the curation of what you were seeing, one, one could argue that, in fact, it would be no different because the algorithm is doing the curating as opposed to somebody else doing the curating for you. Well, it's interesting. When asked, a lot of people say they wish they saw more variation uh, and rather than just a replication of what they've seen in the past. And, and it's technologically not that hard. You know, a group of un undergraduates at University of Chicago uh, for a project came up with a, a, a tool that allows people to see the flip side of what it is that they're currently seeing. Uh, there are wonderful tools that allow for uh, uh, the reading of the content and can code it and help you see, well, what's a different point of view or a different take or news about a different part of the world. Uh, so if we had more control about that uh, ourselves, I think we would see many, many people interested uh, and, and learning from uh, what others are seeing. You know, what about signing up to see what a friend of yours is seeing or what someone you disagree with is seeing? Yeah, I wonder if we say that more than we really mean that. I mean, that's, of course, the, the key question in that. What, what in the current landscape, Martha, gives you some hope for, for all these areas we've been talking about? Well, I am hopeful that many people are talking about it, that there is legislation that has been introduced, that the IRS did allow uh, a paper to turn into nonprofit status, and that there are groups getting together to support the development of new nonprofit models for, for news. Uh, I'm interested um, also to see 
how many uh, students, whether in high school or college, are concerned about this and want to either uh, become journalists or citizen journalists or to participate in developing solutions. Um, I think that there's even wonderful developments in uh, public interest-oriented uh, computer engineers uh, who are concerned about what's happening to democracy. Uh, when it's only the ads that are driving the shapes of the technology. So I do think that there's some promising developments. Martha Minow, her book is Saving the News, Why the Constitution Calls for Government Action to Preserve Freedom of Speech. Martha, I thank you so much for spending time with us today here on the Who, What, Why podcast. Thank you. Wonderful question. Thanks for what you do. Thank you. And thank you for listening and joining us here on the Who, What, Why podcast. I hope you join us next week for another Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.